It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Yeah. Many fruits, not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen got no seats. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. I fire in a fire, Mr. Chicken Southern Gang, and the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, be the jury, beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. Nope, it's the hour of the holiday season. That's bloom, right. bloom, Merry, bloom, bloom. Merry Doomus. Merry <laughs> Christmas to, to all. Well, you know, welcome to, therefore, the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a season of greetings in a Grinchy world. In 2015. That's right. <laughs> I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 700 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm a jolly old elf, ready to keep a Merry Christmas, and also the spirit of Christmas present, ready to put the spirit of medical preparedness in someone, in every family, for any disaster. Wow, see how I sort of mangled that to to fit my purposes? You know what it sounds like? Mm -hmm. It sounds like you're Santa. Oh, well. You're bringing Christmas cheer and and holiday fun to everybody. I'm bringing Christmas crankiness. (laughs) No. Well, let's see. Who am I? You am I? are Mrs. Claus. Who else? You know what? I am Mrs. Claus because I'll bring you as many cookies and milk as you'd like. Oh, well, that's Absolutely. very sweet. Well, but I really am, yes. secretly. Who are you really? <laughs> Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And the hostess with the most is here at the North Pole, or should I say the South Pole? Southern most yeah, pole that's true. in the world. It's that's been true. about 80 degrees here most of the time, maybe 85 degrees. And we in South oh. Florida just don't get a much of a change of seasons. You know what I just saw on television? That New York City may have a Christmas in the, around 70 degrees. What? Mm-hmm. Wow, that is incredible. So it's, they're saying 68 for the next few days and maybe 70 on Christmas. My goodness, there is global warming. Who <laughs> I don't know th- what there is. Who would have thunk it? I don't know. This has been a very wet December, I'll say that. We had a very dry June and a very wet December, so I don't know what's happening. I have no idea either, but I never the do. World but I never do. I never yes, do. Yes, you do. The world is a changing, honey. That's true. <laughs> hey, friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With a raucous reindeer, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and listen to this. 
All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. Don't listen to anything we say, you <laughs> fools. My goodness. Or at least don't admit to listening to anything we say. But if you do listen, you know what? You might just get a little pearl of wisdom. Speaking of which, mm-hmm. pearls of wisdom, I think that you should let our audience yes. give us some pearls of wisdom and let them know how to contact us with all those nuggets of knowledge you that got they it. have. Absolutely. And where they can uh, chat and get in touch with us and yes, interact. That's the idea. So I would say the first one would be our email, mm-hmm. podcast at AOL.com. Our Facebook group, which would be Facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash survival medicine doctor that uses dr i believe we use the dr DR bones Bones and nurse amy that would be all one word that is an awesome facebook group where people interact you don't have to be medical you can be just anybody who's interested in medical preparedness share your ideas and get some for yourself love it let's see we also have a youtube channel dr bones podcast Mm, we have a podcast well (laughs) they're listening to the podcast i think they know that but it is every saturday most saturdays very rarely we skip only if we've got a show and we're just absolutely exhausted (laughs) um but let's see that's a video cast we do that on the first and third wednesday 7 p.m eastern standard time on aroundthecabin.com on their Wednesday schedule. So on first and third Wednesdays of each month. And also don't forget Twitter at Prepper Show. Yep. All right. Well, you know what? Since it's a tease season, season to be jolly. <laughs> it Yes, Santa. A lot of people don't realize it also could be the season for sneezing. Uh-oh. And that's because your Christmas tree might be giving you an allergic reaction. Oh, boy. You know, everybody loves bringing <laughs> home a live Christmas tree, although it's is it really live? At this point, I don't know. Marks the beginning of the holiday season for everybody. The 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 mold, unfortunately, that thrives on its branches can trigger weeks of suffering for some. Molds found in the needles and trunks of Christmas trees, they can grow when they're brought into a warm home. So if there's a small amount of mold on a Christmas tree, unfortunately, bringing it into war, out of the cold into the warm... Uh, it living would, room of your home would make sense to yes. increase the right mold content and it also that mold is concentrated in a smaller space than the great outdoors mm-hmm. and so uh, they actually researched this and Connecticut researchers found that the mold count from a live christmas tree rises to five times the normal level two weeks after the tree is brought indoors Uh-oh. and so this can provide uh, really prove problematic for people that have mold allergies oh sure now, now you also can get uh, allergic reactions from pollens and other things that are stuck to the to the tree's bark. So well, this is outdoors, an and there were breezes, and that's what happens outdoors. That's right. Now you know what? It's not just live trees, though. Artificial trees, 
you know what? They've been sitting in the attic or mm-hmm. in the closet or your, your storage unit or, for a year. Or they were sitting in your home for three or four weeks the year before and three or four weeks the year before and three or four weeks the year before and we don't clean them. Right. Who thinks to clean your artificial tree? Yes. That's okay if you don't have lights. <laughs> well, so what happens is it collects dust over a year, over a year of Year story. after year, year after, after year. year. <laughs> and so what are your solutions? Of course, one, you can give the tree to the Grinch. Uh, two, uh, you give you Grinch. should give it, the, what you should do is you should give it a good shake before you bring it into the house tree. These trees can actually carry aphids and other insects as well, not just pollen and mold. And uh, experts suggest hosing off the tree before taking it inside. Although you mentioned a lot of these artificial trees uh, actually have lights on them We have lights on them. Yeah, so. And I certainly don't want to string a bunch of lights on a tree. That's such a pain. Now, that is what people still do, most people. But there are a lot of trees now that are coming up. Yeah, and you used to make me do it. Yes, I did. (laughs) That was fine. But I put up the ornaments. Yes, you did. You did. Yeah. It It was a shared responsibility, but... But I tell you, going round and round that tree with the lights, <laughs> wee, wee, where I stop, nobody knows. Now, another thing you should do is you should have an air purifier in the room that you put the tree in. HEPA filter. So make sure. If that, possible. I think is very, very important. Now, in addition to Christmas trees or other potential uh, holiday allergy, allergy-causing substances, uh, these can include the foods that you consume at holiday parties, such as uh, nuts uh, and shellfish. I, I actually didn't grow up eating shellfish for christmas but i actually was surprised to find that some people do yep so while you're enjoying oyster stew was a a absolute tradition my mom made it yep she made oyster stew every christmas eve and a lot of people do include seafood in their christmas eve all right well while you're enjoying your christmas crabs and lobster which would make sense because you know the oldest traditions well i don't know i don't know where the seafood came from I was going to say something from the about, sea. Oh, well, I was going to say something the about the Mediterranean area, but you know, <laughs> who knows? Well, you're not from who there. Who knows? No. Anyhow, so well, anyhow, I don't know how that was developed or why. We should look. Keep that an up. eye out for allergies. Also, store your Christmas decorations in plastic containers that you can wipe off, as opposed to cardboard. Cardboard occasionally can develop mold, especially if it, it gets wet and. Uh, uh, one doctor from uh, the University of Louisville School of Medicine in Kentucky actually suggests wearing an N95 mask when you bring these things out of storage. So how about that? Now, another thing related to Christmas that I wanted to mention mm-hmm. is that it looks as if Santa and his reindeer aren't going to be the only things flying through the night sky on Christmas Eve. There apparently is a massive asteroid flying by Earth on Christmas Eve in 2015, uh, and it's got scientists... Keeping an eye on it. Now, NASA downplays, of course, the threat to human life and property, but uh, space rock number SD220 is larger than they previously thought and has the potential to cause deadly earthquakes and eruptions from dormant volcanoes if it actually gets close enough. Now, it's one of about a dozen rocky bodies in space that are considered potentially hazardous. It's about a one and a half miles wide and moves at about five miles per second. Wow, really? And... Uh, um, the good news is that the scientists say there's no shred of evidence that an asteroid or any other celestial object is going to impact Earth. But 
There are people that, of course, you know, subscribe to this Planet X theory or the Planet Nibiru theory, and they're convinced that eventually it's going to whack the planet, and, and this might just be it. Well, but all I have to say is that these things do happen from a preparedness standpoint. There's not much you're going to be able to do to really prepare for a direct hit by an asteroid. So I would just just be jolly. Okay. Now, uh, I'm ready to explain the seafood situation, and I was right. Oh, back, back <laughs> with the seafood. Okay. Yes. Good. Christmas seafood. Yes. All it's right. called the Feast of Seven Fishes, and it's part of... The Italian-American. See, I was talking about Mediterranean. I oh, knew you it had right. something to do with Italy. Yep. Uh, the Italian-American Christmas Eve celebration, although it's not called such, it's called this in Italy and has no proper meaning. It's a tradition existing in a few southern regions, uh, usually not as a holiday. Uh, today, it's a feast that consists of seven different seafood dishes. And, again, it comes from southern Italy. However, some Italian-American families have been known to celebrate with 9, 11, or even 13 different seafood dishes. Wow. So well, You have to like, this, really love seafood. And the celebration commemorates the weight of the, you can say this in your Italian voice. Accent. Vigilia di Natale. That's the uh, Christmas Eve vigil. They're waiting right. for the midnight birth of Jesus. Absolutely. Now, I'm not, interestingly enough, I'm not Italian. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so the long, I know a little bit. Yes, you do. You know a lot, actually. The long tradition of eating seafood on Christmas Eve dates from the Roman Catholic tradition of abstinence, in this case, refraining from the consumption of meat or milk products on Wednesdays, Fridays, and in the Latin church Saturdays, as well as during Lent, and the eve of special holy days. Hmm. Since no meat or animal fat, there's no prohibition of milk or dairy products, could be used on such days, observant Catholics would eat fish, typically fried in oil. Okay. So this is where it, it started to from. come from, yes. All right. Well, that's actually something. Well, you know Italy. what? You learn something every day. There you go. That's right. That's right. Hey, you know, we talk a lot about being a medical caregiver of last resort in survival settings and, you know, how to treat specific illnesses, identify this infection, that infection. But we, oftentimes on these shows uh, that we do, that we don't really talk a lot about the basics. And I really wanted to talk a little bit about a part of every physical exam, and the vital, those are the vital signs. Now, you have to realize that if you're going to be the caregiver in a survival setting and you're the medic, well, people are going to arrive at sick call with complaints that you're going to have to address. And to do that, you're going to have to be able to get information from them to help in your assessment. Of course, um, you want to always get a history of what happened to the patient. You actually probably get most of your information from that, but... You're going to have to also put your hands, gloved hopefully, on them and put and be able to look for physical signs of illness as well or check out a wound in a systematic manner. Now, sometimes the pro- problem is going to be pretty obvious right away and other times you're going to have to examine the entire body to figure out what's happening. Right. Now, before an exam, always communicate to your patient in a calm manner who you are, what you're doing, why you're doing it. Uh, during the exam, always be very careful to avoid forcing people to move or perform actions that are beyond their capability. Not everybody has a full range of motion of their arms or legs. You know, people have injuries, and you're going to have possibly people that, um, you know, might be handicapped in some way. Now, the most basic information is obtained by simply observing the appearance of the patient. If 
uh, they are in no apparent distress. Mark down, no apparent distress. They probably will come to you. If they're coming to you, they might easily be in pain or clearly ill, though. And you just say what they look like. Now, this can be ascertained that, you know, your impression of this Mm -hmm. can easily be ascertained when a person tells you their reason for their visit and the history of what happened. Now, you know, once you've heard this history and their current medical problem, you can begin the physical portion of the exam by checking the vital signs. And these are a set of measurements that give an idea of the general condition of the patient. And the vital signs include the pulse rate, and this is something that can be taken by using two fingers to press on the side of the neck. You feel an artery there called the carotid artery. And a more common alternative is just to take two fingers and feel the radial artery, and that is on the inside of the patient's wrist by the base of the thumb. And speaking of thumbs, don't you ever take a thumb, a, a pulse with a, the thumb because that has a pulse of its own, and you may wind up counting your own pulse when you're trying to count your patient's pulse. Right. Now, a normal pulse rate is about 60 to 100 beats a minute. Now, you can choose to feel the pulse, let's say, for about 15 seconds, multiply the number by four, and you'll get beats per minute. Uh, but if you could take a pulse for an entire minute, it would be obviously much more, more accurate. accurate. Absolutely. Now, you're going to find that most people who are agitated from having suffered an injury could have a high pulse rate over 100, and this is called tachycardia. And a low pulse rate below 60 is called bradycardia. And it might be seen in people with heart problems or other uh, irregular beats. Sometimes seen in highly athletic people, too, as a normal finding. Uh, now, respiration rate is something else you're going to want to check, and that's simply observing the patient breathing, and that'll give you a rate per minute also. And you can, as an alternative, place hands on their back if you really can't see their chest rise and fall, and you can feel the, rise, the raising and lowering of the chest that way. A respiration rate is best evaluated for an entire minute. Uh, the normal adult rate is about 12 to 18 breaths a minute, sometimes more for kids. And uh, the important thing is to note any unusual aspects. Uh, if you, do you hear wheezing, do you hear gurgling noises during inhalation or exhalation, a respiration rate over about 20 per minute is usually a sign of a person in distress. And we call that tachypnea, uh, just like tachycardia is fast heart rate, tachypnea is fast breathing. And braiding, no, people haven't ever heard of braiding, braiding nipnea. <laughs> right. I haven't really either. It basically is a slow breathing rate. Uh, but you probably have heard of apnea, which is no breathing rate. But if you notice that your patient which has is, apnea, then your person is... Which is code, person, which is code, yeah, code blue in the hospital. <laughs> right. But sleep apnea also occurs, and that, that's an issue as that's well. That's true. <laughs> so... Beyond that, we're going to go on now to blood pressure. We'll talk a little bit about that. Blood pressure is a measure of the work that the heart has to do to pump blood through the body. And this is determined partially by the elasticity of the walls of the arteries. The less elastic the wall, the more pressure is required to force blood through it. And your blood pressure is at its highest when the heart beats. This is called the systolic pressure. Now, when the heart is between beats, your blood pressure drops, and this is called the diastolic pressure. And blood pressure is measured using an instrument called a sphygmomanometer. Let's why don't we just call it a blood pressure cuff? <laughs> because boy, that is a mouthful. Now, to use a blood pressure cuff, place a cuff portion around the upper arm of your patient, fill it up with air, uh, using an attached bulb that always comes with it. You'll put it your stethoscope. You should have a stethoscope 
in uh, on your ears and over the and and the bottom of it, which is called the diaphragm, the flat part, or the bell if it's uh, concave. And listen in. You usually put it on the inside of the crook of the arm and listen while looking at the gauge on the cuff. Now you will probably, if you just listen to that before you take the blood pressure to that area, you'll probably find a pulse. And that's where you're going to be listening during the actual taking of the blood pressure. Now, I will say that there are some new compact blood pressure units that are shaped like wristbands and are one piece, and that's wonderful. But, of course, at one point or another, the batteries for these things will die out, and you may not be able to use it anymore. So it is usual, usually a good idea to have a manual blood pressure cuff and be able to take a manual blood pressure reading. So... Now, when you take a blood pressure, you're listening for the pulse to register on your stethoscope or your wristband. And basically what you're measuring is the systolic and diastolic blood pressures, the things that we talked about. And the blood pressure is written down as systolic over diastolic. So the systolic pressure is usually about 120 and the diastolic pressure is about 80. And you'll see it written on your notes uh, as, let's say, 120 over 80. If the systolic is 120 and the diastolic is 80, you call it 120 over 80, for example. And, of course, whatever reading you get, the top, the high number is just said as this is the number over the bottom number. And that's the systolic over diastolic. Wherever the gauge is, when you first hear the pulse, is what we call the systolic pressure. As the air deflates from the blood pressure cuff, the pulse fades away. When it first appears to fade, it's called the diastolic pressure, and you should be concerned with numbers that are above 140 over 90 in the sitting or lying down position. As blood pressures tend to vary at different times of the day and under different circumstances, you'll be looking for at least three elevated pressures in a row before making the diagnosis of high blood pressure or hypertension. It should be noted that pressures may rise in those doing exercise or other physical exertion, so these pressures should be, blood pressures should be measured at rest. Readings above 160 over 100, for example, they're associated with a higher incidence of complications like stroke, heart attack, heart failure, uh, chronic kidney failure, pretty much just about every complication you can imagine. You often see people with high blood pressures having headaches, blurred vision, nausea and vomiting, if someone has a very low blood pressure, it could be seen for someone who's in shock or someone who has hemorrhage. We'll talk about that on another show. But basically, it's important to have an idea of what the pressure, the blood pressure is. Of course, you want to know the mental status of your patient. You want to know your patient's alert and therefore can respond to questions and commands. If they seem disoriented, ask simple questions like their name, where they are, what year it is, and just note down on your notes whether the patient is lethargic or whether they're agitated, you know, see what's going on with them. Some patients may appear unconscious, but might respond to a spoken command. For example, hey, open your eyes. But if no result, you should determine if they can respond to a stimulus, such as a gentle pressure on their breastbone, and just sort of rub their breastbone with, with the knuckles of your hand, and you can see whether that person is responsive to discomfort or responsive to pain. If they're not, we call them unresponsive or unresponsive to pain. Something pretty serious is probably going on. 
body tempers are always important body temperature is always important to keep an eye on and uh, you take the person's temperature to verify they don't have a fever normal temperature will range from 97 to 99 degrees fahrenheit or about 37 degrees celsius now significant fever is defined as a temperature above 104 104 100.4 degrees fahrenheit or 38 degrees celsius uh less than 95 degrees fahrenheit or 35 degrees celsius may indicate cold related illness such as hypothermia of course on the opposite end is heat stroke and that's where the temperature may rise above 105 degrees fahrenheit or 40.5 degrees celsius and that is heat stroke just about heat stroke territory every time now once you've taken the vital signs and determined that there is no obvious injury well you're going to perform your general exam from head to toe in an organized fashion and we'll talk about that in future episodes of our show Okay, well, you know, in normal times, I want to talk a little bit about normal times. Hopefully there'll be a lot I of wonder, normal, normal times. times or, <laughs> absolutely, we can only hope. Yes. Uh, your main goal, what's your main goal upon encountering somebody that's injured or ill? Trans, let's see, stabilize and transport. That's right, get them to a, <laughs> get them stabilized and, and to a modern medical facility as soon as possible. I was just going to say transport, but we got to stabilize them first. Well, we... <laughs> Now, of course, you know, these medical facilities that you're going to be transporting them to mm-hmm. won't exist in most of the scenarios that we talk about. Right. But we do have to deal with the issue of having possibly to move somebody. Exactly. Uh, standard first aid protocols dictate that you should leave a victim in the position they're found until emergency personnel arrive. But when help is not on the way, they may eventually become impractical to be able to wait for emergency personnel. As such, you're going to have to make a decision as to whether your patient can or can't be treated for their medical problem at their present location. If you can't do that, consider how you're going to move that patient to where the bulk of your medical supplies are. So before deciding whether to transport, you got to stabilize the patient as much as possible. That means assuring that the airways are open, open, that you stop all bleeding, that you're splitting orthopedic injuries, that whatever needs to be done to get that person safely away. Now, if you're unable to do this with the materials that you have, you might have to consider having a group member go to the retreat or go to your camp and get the supplies you need to make transport safer. I mean, have as many helpers as possible to assist you if you're dealing with an injured person or somebody that has a, a medical issue because if you know the amount of assistance that you have, you can choose a method of evacuation that will cause the least trauma to both the injured person and you, the person that might become injured. Now, when moving a patient, you have to always be concerned about the possibility of a spinal injury. And these are things that are a particular concern. If there's head or neck trauma, if you notice any altered mental status, if there's pain in the head or neck, if you notice any weakness or numbness or paralysis of any of the extremities, if the if that person has lost bladder control or you see a strange position in the neck or difficulty moving uh, the muscles that, that control the neck. So these are some of the things that are make you a little suspicious that something's going on and you have to be especially careful if you're going to move them. And 
remember that in, in normal times, you're going to call the emergency personnel. You're going to let them move them. Do not move the person in that circumstance. But if you are alone and you have to do this all by yourself or with your with your helpers in a survival setting, then you're going to have to you will have to do something. A person with a possible spinal injury should be log rolled onto a stretcher as a unit without bending your neck or back, if at all possible. Now, a cervical collar helps. Supportive blocks with straps can be used to secure the spine of all patients that you're suspicious that may have, may have an injury. And as you're moving the patient, you're going to want to hold onto their head so that it stays aligned with the spine as they're moving. An unstable neck, especially in somebody that's unconscious, could easily be traumatized even if not involved in the original accident or the original injury that is sending them to medical care. So right. always keep the head in alignment with the spine during transport. Again, I th- and I think a good visual is what you were saying, log rolling, which is an official word or a name for what you're doing, the movement, but it's a good visual. A log is straight, it's even, right. and when you roll it, all parts roll together. So keep that in mind when you're thinking about moving a patient. And you say, I have to log roll him, imagine, or her, imagine a log. True that. It's not bent, yes. it's not folded, it's not curved, it's straight. And what you're straightening out is the spine. Right, exactly. Now, if you have several helpers, of course, transporting this person is going to be much easier but it requires coordination Now, you as a medic are going to be the leader of the transport team and that entails making sure the patient is transferred to the stretcher safely of course it means that but also that all team members lift and move things at the same time and so you might have to if you have four people that you're uh, managing mm-hmm. in terms of moving this person mm-hmm. you're going to want to say something like prepare to lift lift march or move or walk mm-hmm. you know uh, commands like that are simple everyone's on the same page they're moving at the same time and one person's not starting to walk while the other person's still standing still right and you can wind up getting off balance and the patient may twisting the patient, patient right or making the patient fall right exactly or somebody mishaps. else can be injured right a lot of mishaps can happen now to move a patient onto a stretcher What you're going to want to do is you're going to want to position the casualty on near the stretcher, right next to the stretcher, on his on his back with his arms at at the side, and then one helper slips their arms under the casualty's back and waist, and another helper does the same under the hips and knees. So what you're doing is you are grabbing uh, the person. From the back, mm-hmm. you're putting your arms around them and cover around the chest, and you're locking your arms. That's one person. The second person is grabbing under the knees with both arms, and upon your command, they lift and they can place the patient or the victim on the stretcher. Mm-hmm. Now, an alternative is to have two helpers carefully log roll again, again the patient on their side right. and move them so that they're facing them rather than lifting them uh-huh. and then what you do is you slip the stretcher underneath them and then roll them and back then roll onto them the back onto right. the stretcher that's, and a, this, that's a similar position that you would do when you were changing the linens well, on a bed exactly and i was you, just about to mention that because i know that that's something that's a that nursing you would do thing, right? yes. it's a nursing thing. 
Exactly. <laughs> yes, you roll the patient on their side, roll the sheets up that you're going to change that are dirty, put them right at the base of the body, roll the patient over that log of sheets, and then when they face the other side, you can pull the sheets off, then you put the new sheets on, do a little roll, put the patient up over that, and then pull those sheets to the other side. Yeah. So it, log rolling is very effective for many things it, with a patient, including taking a bath. Uh-huh, you need that's to bathe true. their backs and they have an injury, the back of the patient. That is actually very good Without nursing having advice. To set them set them up, yes. Remember yep. the medic is a nurse too. The nurse, medic medics may Consider themselves to be the doctor, and certainly you're the healthcare about... provider. But you're also going to be doing nursing care. Yeah. You have to know how to deal with the everyday aspects of, of caring for that injured patient. I think we should spend a, t- a, a show talking about that, talking about how t- how what are some of the routine things that you would have to do on a daily basis for someone who's sick, regardless of what was wrong with them, if they were home. And you had to care for them as if they were in a hospital. What are some of the aspects? What are some of the things you're going to look for? What are some of the things you're going to do? Including how to do a bed bath. And exactly. how frequently to change their their linens. And how often to give them fluids and what kind of foods. Vital oh, I, signs. I so, have a question. And you're talking about vital signs right now. Right. Uh, I have a question. Or Actually, now you're talking about transporting the patient. <laughs> but you were talking about but vital I, signs. But I do have a now, question Now as you. in now on the show. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I have a question for you. Yes. Should the patient have their arms at their side or their arms across their chest as, as you're log rolling? Um, if they can move their arms and bend them, it was easier for the patient to... Um, hold themselves kind of like they're giving themselves a, a hug. hug. So right. they place their hands on their opposite uh, upper arms. Good. I'm so glad you said that. Yes. <laughs> because I think that's it is the right more thing comfortable. To... Right. right now, you know, if the patient can't move their arm, you know, keeping them straight, you can do that. But it was easier for us because remember, we weren't rolling them over and over and over down a hill. We were just moving them to their side and then to their other side. Right. So they were just going from one shoulder to the next shoulder. Now remember the head, keep the head in alignment with the spine. Back to, I'm going to mention yes, that a couple yes, of times. Yes, absolutely. Now, straight, straight, straight. Now there are a number of methods available to move an injured patient back to camp. Now if you don't have the luxury of a vehicle, I mean the next easiest method involves using a stretcher. Now there are many excellent litter systems that are available commercially, uh, and I if you can get them and you have them available, you know, I think that is awesome. If you don't have the ability to, uh, you're not either near where your stretcher is or you just don't have the resources to buy a stretcher. I mean, there are improvisations that are pretty good. With a little ingenuity, you can really improvise a stretcher not too, without too much difficulty. Now, even without any materials, really, to put together a litter, there are still methods that are going to allow one or two medics to achieve their transport goal. Now, let's talk about found materials, things that you're going to find. Now, in a survival setting, an injury is likely going to occur without a commercially made stretcher right there. So you will probably, especially in urban environments, you're going to find abandoned residential buildings, maybe even in rural settings. And those are going to contain a number of materials that are I call found materials 
that can serve the purpose. For example, an inside uh, closet door, one of the lighter doors, not the heavy uh, outside door uh, entrance to the house, might might be useful as a litter if you have enough people to grab it, uh, grab the the sides of it and lift. Uh, but an ironing board is also something that might be able to serve the purpose. Blankets might be able to serve the purpose. And these are probably going to be easy finds. I mean, who's going to be taking their ironing board with them when they're bugging out, right? So this is something that you might easily find in any kind of home that might be abandoned. Now, all of these can function as a litter or backboard as long as you have enough helpers present to hold the victim in place. Now, to help that, you might use folded over paracord. You can use additional blankets. You can use rope. Uh, these can be used as handholds for the person's lifting. Or sheets are very good, just like blankets. Sheets, yeah. right. And to prevent uh, hanging extremities, you can, you can use them to secure somebody in place. Uh, and I think that that's, that's certainly an option. As a matter of fact... You know what we need to test? We need to test Mylar blankets. I don't know I, how... Well, I, yeah, don't I don't know think. their strength. Yeah, I don't know. If you could actually... I you know, Of course, you can cover a patient. The question is, can you use that to lift a patient? No way, I, don't, I say. I don't know. They I mean, might be pretty strong. Well, maybe if you had a huh. few of them. But in any case... <laughs> In any case, lengths of paracord or blankets or rope actually can be, Chris, uh, uh, blankets can be used by itself, uh, folded over. Uh, paracord uh, can be crisscrossed using sticks or poles and knotted uh, to make a, a means of transport. Rope, of course, the same way. And another example of an easily found item in a abandoned building is a chair. If you have a conscious casualty, a sturdy chair can be used by itself as a reasonable litter. Now, in this method, the patient sits or is placed on the chair. One transporter stands in back of the chair, grabs it from the sides, uh, and tilts it back. And then the second transporter gets in front of the chair, uh, grasps the chair legs in front, and both lift using their legs. Now, for, for short distances, the second transporter can face the victim, but it's really easier if you're going to be going for a long distance with somebody in a chair that both both people in front and in back are facing the same way, so you should face forward, I would say. Now, uh, we mentioned using blankets. Uh, blankets or clothing are actually very useful from the standpoint of um, being a material for a stretcher. Even if, Even if you don't have a backboard... Uh, a poncho, a blanket in your backpack can help certainly help move a casualty. You simply place the victim on the stretched out blanket, then have everybody, if you have enough people, you have everybody roll the sides inward to form handholds, and you can lift and carry. Now, a two-person blanket stretcher, uh, you're going to have fewer assistance. Obviously, you're going to need some additional support. And in this case, if you have two poles or if you can find sticks that are about six to seven feet long and about two inches or more thick, you can probably make a litter by placing the sticks so that the blanket is divided in thirds. You fold one of the outer thirds over the stick and then the other outer third over the other stick. And what happens is you put the casualty on there and the person's weight actually helps keep the blanket in place. Now, of course, everyone has probably heard of the jacket stretcher. It's a variation of the method. Uh, and you're going to need two button jackets or shirts with the buttons and, and get them buttoned up. And 
preferably, this is going to sound stranger, preferably going to still be on the rescuers. Now, when the first transporter grasps the litter pole, the second transporter goes, grabs the, the garment, and pulls it over the head of the first transporter inside out. And what happens is you'll find if that transporter is holding on to those sticks that the jacket will automatically, through the sleeves, move onto the poles and that will help form a bed for the stretcher. Now, a second jacket or a second shirt should probably be used and so the the two transporters reverse roles and that will happen. Now, I want to say that this is, I think, a very reasonable way to make a stretcher, but it should only be used if the weather is such that the rescuers are going to be able to tolerate the loss of that clothing item during transport. Then, of course, you have one person. How about if you have one person and you have a blanket or a poncho? What you can do, if you can get that victim onto the blanket or onto the poncho, you place the, the blankets under the patient, you grasp the blanket at one end with both hands, positioning your forearms so that you're cradling the head. So you're basically grabbing the blanket under the shoulders. Your forearms are positioned on either side of the head uh, to stabilize it. And then you're going to use your legs to pull, in, legs to pull instead of your back. This avoids injury. And you drag the victim out, basically, well, in short increments. I mean, most people aren't going to be able to continue to gra- just drag people for a mile you know, without stopping, you're going to have to stop frequently. And also it'll be less traumatic on your victim. If you do that, you know, uh, if you don't even have that, well, if that person has some clothes on a, a shirt or a jacket, grab under the shoulder with the jacket and just pull that uh, using the forearms to stabilize the head, just pull on the jacket and drag them that way. I mean, sometimes you just have to use what you have there. Now, how about if you don't even have that? I mean, you have absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing that you, at, is at your disposal to help evacuate a patient other than your own muscles. Well, here are three methods that you can transport a person without any equipment depending on the number of people you have. If you have a three-person team or at least three people or more, you can form a hammock that'll make for easy lifting and transport with, the peop- with your assistant's arms. Now, in this method... The rescuers kneel on both sides of the victim. You reach under the victim and grab the wrist of the person across from you. And those at each end will be grabbing just one wrist. But, for example, the the one at the head end that the victim's head is at will use one hand to support the head. And the person that's at the foot of the victim will support the feet of the victim as they're being moved. Now, you, everybody starts off kneeling, but upon command, the rescuers will get on one knee and then stand. And you do this in a coordinated method. I mentioned how important it is to coordinate it. That's why you, medic, must be in charge. You have to be leader of the transport team and give these orders. Uh, sometimes you might have to get a, a patient that's onto a higher level than a stretcher on the ground, maybe a gurney or an operating table. And for this person, there is something called the three-person carry. That's useful to lift a person for short distances. And what happens is the transporters get on one knee. They roll the log roll the patient to his side, facing them. And then he's lifted onto their knee, and the team stands on command. They could do this for a short period of time by holding the, 
the casualty on their chests and starting on the same foot, they move to put the victim on the gurney or on the operating table or on the table. Uh, if you only have one assistant, well, you have you do have a number of options. Options you can make a four-handed seat with interlocking wrists if your casualty is the other hand. Yeah, we're, we're, we're demonstrating, doing, we're by de- the way. We're demonstrating <laughs> on audio. But we just made a four. Yes. We interlock right. wrists. Right, just like that. We interlock wrists and we made actually a seat. Yep. And this seat is wide enough for somebody to put their rear end on. And if they are conscious, they can hold on to each person's shoulder. There's Absolutely. one person on each side. And uh, it actually makes a relatively stable seat. I I just want to mention real quickly that I went out and I tested one of our Mylar blankets. I stood on it and I pulled up on both sides of it as hard as I could, and it did not break. It did not break. I pulled it as hard as I could, and I was standing on it. It is very, very tough. I was completely shocked. Well, we'll see what we can... It has good strength. We'll do some more testing, but I just want to tell folks that the initial testing, and I also put... Um, something very heavy. We had a a little statue that weighs a lot. I put it on it and picked it up. All right, probably about weighs that? about fifty pounds. Wow, serious, <laughs> incredible! It didn't break at all. So wow. you are commended for your I'm, initiative. I, well, soldier. I figured if we're going to mention it, that I should test it out. All right. Well, I we'll... never thought of using it as a carry, but you know what I'm going to do when we're finished with this is you're going to lay on it and I'm going to drag you. Oh, boy. And I think it's going to work fine. All right. Well, we'll find out. <laughs> now, I wanted to say that if, with the four... I promise I won't hurt Dr. Bones, everyone, by the way. <laughs> with the four-handed seat, it can become a three-handed seat simply by making a triangle instead of a square with when you interlock your wrists. And that gives one person a free hand. So, we've got that. Now... The other option, let's say you have somebody that's unconscious. Everything that I mentioned so far with these two, with these seat carries, assumes that somebody is conscious. If that person is unconscious, you need to provide some back support. And so what happens is you take one hand. The, the in um, if you're the person on the right, you'd be your right hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, actually, is it your right hand too? Yeah, it would be your right hand. And we'll be grab the other person's wrists or forearm. Mm-hmm. Right, and then that makes a nice chair. Okay, well, actually, no, let's see how it is. It's the left hand and my right hand. Your left hand, my right hand. In other words, the opposite hands. Yes, of course. Okay, for each person. Yes. And that you're forming a seat that is like a bar. You're making a bar with the interlocking, Mm -hmm. uh, two interlocking arms. Yes. And then what you're doing is you're coming right next to to the other assistant, and you are putting your arm around their shoulder. each Behind their head. Right, behind their head, around their shoulder. And... What happens is is that your unconscious person is going to be lifted onto the bar right, that the, you form the with, right, arms. with the, gra- the arms that are grasping each other. That's the seat. And then they lay back. Their, their back is against your our other arms, which are across your shoulders. Right. And so... So we form a chair. And that you so essentially form a chair. And if somebody is unconscious, it's it gives possible them support. to move them. Right. right. Exactly. Uh, and the other, of course, the two-person lift is the crutch method everybody has seen on 
TV when some when the hero gets injured. Yeah, you know, they're they, limping. They're and limping, leaning and they, on you. Yeah, they <laughs> lean on you, and you basically just have one person on either side to, uh, and and what happens is uh, the the two people will actually grab the wrist each wrist one person grabs a wrist and it goes over the shoulder right and your person is right and so you have you grab one arm i've grabbed one arm and the person is in between and we're dragging yep. them along where i mean if they can help well if they can walk that's great if, if, if they can't walk their feet go behind them and, and they drag just, them out of harm's way now if you do that then what you should do is you should use the hand that's in back to grab them by the belt the waistband or the belt loops and lift up a little and, bit. And get as and gives a little, gives a little well, support. Well, if you're dividing the weight between two people, it shouldn't be too bad. The other method that two people can do that I think is maybe even better is the fore and aft method. And in that method, remember how I told you that... This is so hard to just describe. It's hard to describe. <laughs> but, but the fore and aft method, and I do, I am, I am going to be putting up an article on this and it's going to have illustrations, so... Good. Uh, but the forward aft method is gonna is basically one person in back. They go go around the back of the of the of the casualty. They they put their hands under the armpits and around the front. Yes. And lock in front of the chest. Uh-huh. And the other person stands in 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 between the legs of the victim person, right? and grabs the knees behind them. And lifts. Yes. And so each of them are lifting. Your lift, uh, the person in back is lifting with their uh, arms around the chest of the person. Locked. They right. lock their wrist, right. Their arms locked. And the person in front has the knees and they're lifting with the knees. And then you walk in the, the same knees. direction. Right. And you walk directly in the same direction. And that's actually more comfortable. Um, interestingly enough, if the taller transporter is on doing the side nearest the head. Okay. So that the body side. Okay. So that that's important. Upper body, I should say, the upper body. <laughs> and then there are situations where you are absolutely alone. There's no equipment. You have to evacuate the patient. And in that circumstance, you can consider the fireman's carry. The fireman's carry is effective. It keeps the victim's torso relatively level and stable on your shoulders. Now that's something that's only possible if it, the person weighs a certain amount and not more. But to achieve this, basically, while you squat or kneel, you grab the person's right wrist with your left hand, drape it over your shoulders, and you keep your back straight. You place your right hand between your legs and around the right thigh and lift. And basically, what using your leg muscles, of course, to lift, you should end up with their torso over their back and the right thigh is resting over your right, sho- uh, over your right shoulder. Their left arm and leg is going to be hanging behind your back if you've done it right. And so you, this allows you to adjust and you can carry, especially a, a somewhat lighter person with the least strain. And then if you have somebody that might be a little heavier, then you might consider the pack strap carry. And the pack strap carry, what you're doing with your patient behind you, you grasp both arms, you cross them across your chest. Okay, and the patient's behind you this time. You're not in mm-hmm. front of the patient. You're, uh, I mean, you're not in ba- back of the patient. You're in front of the patient. Right. You grab the patient, and you grasp their arms, put those arms around your chest, and if you're, you know, if, if that person's kneeling or, or on the ground, you, you're, you're squatting when you're doing this, and you're keeping your back straight. You use your left and back muscles to lift a victim. Now you've got basically somebody that is on your back. And what you do, if you bend slowly so the patient's weight 
is on your hips. You lift them off the ground and you'd be surprised the weight that you can move with that method. So I do want to say one thing that's important to remember this simple acronym whenever you pull or carry a person that's B-A-C-K, back. B is for back straight. Muscles and discs can handle more weight safely when the back is straight. Right. A in back is for avoid twisting. Joints can be damaged when you twist. C in back is for close to body. That means avoid reaching to pick up a load. It causes more strain on muscles and joints. And K is keep stable. The more rotation and jerking, the more pressure on the discs and muscles. Well, that is all the time we have for today. We want to thank everybody for listening in to the Survival Medicine Medicine Hour Hour. with the beautiful Nurse Amy, old, that old, old, old Dr. Bones. We want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas and a very happy and healthy New Year. We'll see you next time on yeah we'll see you after christmas on the survival medicine have a happy holiday everybody bye now you've been listening to the doom and bloom hour with medical preparedness experts dr bones and nurse amy check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine gardening natural remedies medical supplies and lots of other good stuff contact us send your email to dr bones podcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website see you next week